Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. For more information, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Today, we conclude our conversation with Hank Hanegraaff. He serves as president of the Christian Research Institute and host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast and the Hank Unplugged podcast. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Today, we continue our conversation, and Hank discusses his battle with cancer, his book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, and we close with a discussion of God's sovereignty. I want to go to your book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. You talk about it in your podcast. Uh, The rest of the title is The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. And for those who don't know your story in recent years, you know, you and I share some medical crises and, and some, some challenges there, but this, is, this, to me, is such an important book for a time such as this. Now, you, you and I have discussed this post-truth world, as I mentioned, that we live in today and the importance of holding firmly to absolute truth, but I'm wondering if you just talk about the book and talk about the idea, this, this notion that life matters more. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this is a really important concept to me. I mean, I I finished this book while I was going through a four-year battle with cancer. And I decided, really, that I don't want to write any more books after this. Now, whether I hold to that in the long term or not, I really don't know. But I, I really love what I'm communicating in this book because, essentially, I'm communicating the significance of truth. I'm saying that truth matters. I'm not saying truth doesn't matter or truth is less important. I'm saying truth matters. Truth really, really matters. In fact, outside the truth kept by the whole church, personal experience is deprived of certainty. It becomes a mingling of truth and falsehood. So truth is transcendently important. But I've discovered that there's life beyond truth. That truth leads us into life. And, and, and this is, again, why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the path towards the Father who is the embodiment of truth. So truth is significant. It is the bedrock. But I say life matters more because life involves a mysterium that is to be experienced rather than explained. It's not a prohibition upon knowledge, but it is the transcending of knowledge. It's the transcending of all philosophical speculation. And I, in my book, I tell the story of Thomas Aquinas, who in 1273, I think the day was actually December 6, 1273, he had a Eucharistic experience that caused him to stop writing his Summa. You might recall that his Summa was, you know, one of the most prodigious works in the history of writing. Indeed. I mean, Hard to imagine anything more significant than this Summa, because what he tried to do is he tried to codify all of truth as a coherent whole, 
So he tried to take truths from anthropology and science and ethics and psychology and political theory, theology, and he tried to harmonize all of that under the banner of truth. And he hadn't finished it when he had this Eucharistic experience in a chapel. This Eucharistic experience so changed him, so utterly rewired his circles. He had an experience of the real presence of God that he said to his secretary, Reginald, my brother's name, Reginald, he said, I cannot finish my work because all I have written seems as though it is so much straw. Hmm. And and it gives you some kind of a glimpse of what that experience meant to him. Not an experience that was ungrounded or unfounded, but an experience that came out of his understanding of truth. Now, fortunately, he didn't say, well, I've had this experience, and so now I'm going to throw away everything I've written in the Summa, because we would have been impoverished if we didn't have that corpus of information. It's very, very significant, important, and transformational. He, he allowed what he had written to carry on to his posterity and vicariously to us, but he was transformed. And I had a similar experience. I could define truth. I could debate truth. I could defend truth, but I wasn't experiencing the life that matters more. And, and my experience over the last maybe 10 or so years encompasses this idea of a life that matters more, a life that is transformational, a life that is formed within this repository of jewels that I talked about earlier, that there's no bottom to. And, and it is a life that is focused not on just knowing about God, but knowing him experientially. Mm. And I think there's a lot of ways in which you can experience that. You can experience that through the Christian disciplines, through fasting, through prayer, through almsgiving. That's the triple-braided cord that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But also through other disciplines, through reading things that are really transformational, through partaking in the graces that God gives us in the church. In the church, we receive graces that are transformational, that take us from one glory to another, which is exactly what Jesus Christ talked about when he talked to, to the woman at the well and said that if you drink of this water, you'll drink of water by which you will never thirst again. And of course, everybody wants that kind of living water. Jesus pointed her to that and as you get into the treasure chest of Scripture, you find your way to that wellspring of life that matters more as well. But ultimately, you find that wellspring in a healthy, well-balanced church. Because as St. Cyprian of Carthage once said, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. It is in the church that we see the graces that transform us from one glory to another by which we experience what Jesus said, life and life more abundantly, the life that matters more. Mm, and I, wow, I think of the state of the church when you say that, that makes me, makes me shudder. You know, the, the one thought that I had as you were talking is this, this truth experience matter, this distinction, this is not a zero sum game, is it? It's not these concepts aren't mutually exclusive. They go, in fact, they go hand in hand. You were, you were prepared by the study of truth all these years 
for this change that you talked about over this this past ten year period? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a uh, there's a, a theologian that has really had a deep impact on me. His name is Vladimir Lossky. and uh, there are many things that, that that he says that have been impactful to me. But one of the things, in in reference to what you just said, is he said that Christian theology is always, in the last resort, a means. It's a unity of knowledge that subserves an end which transcends all knowledge. And then he said this ultimate end is union with God or deification. Now, there's a cultic way or an occultic way of speaking of deification, and there's a Christian way of speaking of deification. Uh, He was speaking of deification in the sense of being a partaker of the divine nature, which means that you become more and more, as I was talking about earlier, more and more godlike, that you experience fellowship in the Holy Trinity, that you experience union with God, the very thing that we are created for. That is a Christian concept of deification. He also said this. He said that after the fall, human history is a long shipwreck awaiting rescue. But then he said, in concert with what we're talking about earlier, he said the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is the possibility of the shipwrecked to resume a journey whose sole goal is union with God. In other words, we were created for fellowship in the Holy Trinity. Mm. You know, I want to, you've been so gracious with your time, and I, I want to ask you one other question. And, and the, the reason I want to ask you this question, it, it's a theological question, and it has to do with, uh, boy, 10, 15, almost 20-year inquiry on, on my part. And it's one that I think it's always going to be incomplete on this earth, but it's it really has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God versus uh, notice that I won't make the mistake of saying man's free will, but I will say the sovereignty of God versus man making decisions, making choices, having choices. And I, I remember years ago bugging maybe the nicest man I ever met who works for you, Paul Young, and he sent me volumes of, actually he sent a couple of unpublished books on this topic, and what I, my struggle was, I was, I was under the ministry of R.C. Sproul, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, who you and I share as a mutual friend, and I just struggled with the doctor with some reformed doctrines, Calvinistic doctrines, and I remember on the golf course talking with you about uh, Romans eight and nine, and I, I said, could you explain it to me? and explain this concept in words that I can understand, because I'd heard you on the radio all these years, and I, I knew you had you have such a good way of communicating, a succinct but yet deep way of, of expressing these concepts. And you, you challenged me. You said, you said, go read Romans 9 and think about the question, that, think about the audience, and think about the question that Paul is, is answering. And I, that's exactly what you said to me. And I remember where we were standing when you said it. And and I went away and I did that. I did maybe a little more study than that even. I went and grabbed some commentaries. And, and I remember seeing you a few weeks later and saying at lunch, okay, I read it and I think I understand it. And you, you explained this as well as anyone I know. And I, I, 
I know that this audience includes people in churches that, that believe in the essentials of the faith, as you often say, but who are confused on this issue, who struggle with this issue. And you gave it so much clarity for me. I know it's off topic and kind of just want to kind of throw this in here at the end, but I'm wondering if you would just talk about that issue, maybe even in the context of Romans 8 and 9, but but just generally this notion of of God's sovereignty and salvation and otherwise, and yet uh, man's volition. Yeah, I think it's a transcendently important question in a lot of ways. Uh, in, in fact, it was one of the questions, I, I grew up in a Calvinist home, and it was one of the questions that, that plagued me as a young young person, because if God created us in such a way that we had to respond to his love, or vicariously we couldn't respond to his love, either way, uh, the question then becomes, is God the author of evil? And if God is the author of evil, how do you distinguish God from being evil himself? So if you take the Calvinist perspective, that God created people who are doomed from the womb to certain destruction, you now are placed in a very difficult circumstance. Again, philosophically, if you cash all of this out, which would take a little bit of time, but if you cash all of this out, you come up with a philosophical dilemma. Is God not only the author of evil, but is God evil himself? I think that the problem is resolved when you have a robust view of libertarian freedom. And I think that this, I not only think, but I know that this was the position of the early church. So when you look at passages like Romans 8 and 9, you can try to grapple with it on your own, or you can grapple it looking at it with a lens that you have been given and that you see that passage through that particular lens. But if you took a different pair of eyeglasses, put them on you, you'd see that passage very differently. So there are two lenses that you can read that, that passage through. I think the one lens is untenable. The other is tenable and consistent with the nature of God. The problem that you run into is that we're trying to figure these things out in the 21st century or the 20th century or the 16th century. But church history goes all the way back to the apostles and then the apostolic fathers and then the fathers of the church, the great apologists, the pre- and post-Nicene fathers, and they give us a way, a lens by which we can read the passage rightly. And I think this has been the greatest liberation for me. I don't read the passage bringing all my expertise to it. I read the passage bringing the expertise of the church to it, Mm. which means the consensus of the fathers. What was the consensus of the fathers? How did they read this passage? Now, tradition is not another horse to ride, Tradition, holy tradition as it's called, is actually a way of rightly understanding what God has given us. So God not only gives us the Bible, 
but he also gives us a right way of understanding the Bible. And I think what's been transcendently important for me is to go back and grapple with the writings of the early church fathers. What was believed always, everywhere, and by all, as opposed to what is being communicated in the 16th century, as though there were no centuries of history that preceded it. Now, I'll say one other thing in this regard. Uh, I think it's very significant to recognize that in reading Scripture, we oftentimes find ourselves in what I call the land of antinomy, meaning the land of tension. Because on the one hand, you see passages that so clearly point to the sovereignty of God. On the other hand, we see passages that clearly point to human choice, that our choices really make a difference. I think the, the real danger is the strident poles, either the pole of denying God's sovereignty mm. or the pole of denying human libertarian freedom. The one pole, the pole of denying God's, God's gracious gift of, of free will, Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is necessary for love. That's you know, right. if we can't choose, then love is rendered meaningless. But I think the pull that negates that is what Calvin said. You know, he said famously that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and within the ruin of his posterity, but he also at his own pleasure arranged it. He also said that all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of those ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. And he expounded on that by saying that God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the pull that negates not only the history of the Church's teachings from the very beginning, but also the pull that leads us to God being the author of evil and the philosophical question of whether, if God is the author of evil, God might be evil himself. And this was the great dilemma that I faced early on in my life because it was a question that was unanswered by my teachers, but it is a question that is well answered by the apostolic fathers from Ignatius of Antioch to Polycarp and on through the ages. Mm, there, you know, there's so much to say there, and I, I remember this about your background now that I think about it, that you you talked to me about that when I asked you these these questions, and there there's so much more to say. I mean, you're, I was thinking about eisegesis and exegesis as you were talking. You know, we we tend to, if we take one side of that argument, we tend to read into scripture that view. And as you just said, I I, I think we can embrace the tension. We can answer the question: Is is God sovereign, or does man get to make choices? Does man have volition? And the, the answer can be yes. And I, I often, and it's easy for me to do because I'm, you know, a finance guy by training, and I'm a, 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 a sort of a, I hack away at theology. But it's helpful for me to just conclude with a matter like this that 
I know the character. I, I can answer the question, who is God? Who is man? How does God relate to man? I can answer those questions reasonably well and understand that other scripture outside of some specifically difficult, challenging sections informs me on God's character, and I can rely on his character, particularly with the doctrine that you, that you mentioned, the doctrine of of damnation or, or reprobation is kind of the way the Calvinist would say it. It is impossible, I believe, for a holy, loving, righteous God to create people who are damned from birth, in short. Yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely true. And I think what I told you about Romans 8 and 9 is that if you read the end of that passage, you see the takeaway. And the takeaway is that God is either the capstone of our life or he's the capstone over which we stumble. And that's how he ends that passage. Mm -hmm. Again, I think you come to a passage and you have to ask the question, what is the question that Paul is actually addressing here? And that's I think right. once that's solidified in your mind, that's helpful. Uh, very helpful. And, and, you know, I went back and studied the composition of the Roman Church. I didn't realize that there was, there was a minority, uh, maybe 35-40%, we don't quite know, of, of Jewish members of that church. And they, the, the whole uh, reference to the nation of Israel and potter and clay from the Old Testament— those were all important uh, lessons for me to learn. I had heard those taught in perhaps an unhelpful way. Well, Hank, I have well, taken— I, go, go right Quickly ahead. there, John. I mean, I think this is a really important point. What, what you're pointing out is a principle that most people listening in would do well to pick up on. And that is that if you, you can read virtually the Old Testament— without ever reading the Old Testament by reading the New Testament, because the, mm. the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, and Paul does that prolifically. So he if does. you go a passage like uh, Romans chapter 8 and 9, you can actually go back to what passage is Paul quoting. And when you go back to the passage in the Old Testament, you will find that there's a, a more full explanation of what Paul is truncating in, 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 in the book of Romans. And that will give you the context, and that will preclude the notion of hard determinism. That's exactly right. And, and, and you know, even the doctrine of knowing that Romans is all about this letter, this epistle to the—knowing when he wrote it, knowing why he wrote it, knowing he hadn't visited there yet— knowing that that church was probably not started by strong apostolic influence other than other believers who migrated there. When you know some of those historical facts that are well-documented in literature outside of the Bible, you know those things, and it's easier to understand why, why Paul would be so concerned about communicating clearly this doctrine of justification by faith. I often think about this, Hank, and you, you, you prompted all of this years ago in me, but I, but I even think about this. Imagine, imagine this. Even in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he talks about living sacrifice, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, the only thing that church would have been aware of are, is dead sacrifices, right, to that point. That, that metaphor is so powerful. But think, think about this. The Jewish people had been exiled. They had just returned. The Gentiles in Rome were worshiping of false gods. And so... Actually, the church at Rome, the readers of this letter, 
would have been de facto atheists of the day, wouldn't they? They were not mainstream. They were countercultural. That's fascinating to me. And then at least, so, so that's the backdrop. That's the presupposition these people come to this letter with. And then, then he talks about justification by faith, which would have really been troubling to them because they are afflicted with the same condition we all have, this sense of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness through, in the case of Gentiles, idol worship, in the case of the Jewish people, this whole hanging on to the law. Yeah, and, and again, just to to highlight the point that you were making earlier, you mentioned the phrase potter and clay. Uh, just for your audience, if they go back and, and read that portion, which is in Romans chapter 9, then you can cross-reference. Most Bibles give you the, the ability to do that very easily. They'll have a little note where you where, where Paul's quoting from. So you can go to a passage like, uh, <clears throat> I think it's Jeremiah uh, 18 That's right. and Isaiah 29, and then you can read the fuller context. So that that's a really helpful thing in terms of just practical advice for people listening in. Say, well, you know, I don't know if I agree with what John said or what Hank said. I want to check it out for myself. And I think that's the really healthy place for people who really are concerned with truth. They need to test all things and then hold fast that which is good, because otherwise truth becomes a popularity contest, right? Where, where, where people say, Hank said this, John said this, I believe this. Mm-hmm. But rather, I think much better that people say, you know, I heard Hank say this or John say this. Uh, let me go back and see if what they're saying actually corresponds to reality, because that, that, that's what truth is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Mm-hmm. Truth is that which corresponds to realistic worldview. So you go back and you check out, test all things, hold fast to that, which is good. You just described what I did after every round of golf we played. And, <laughs> and, and by the way, people are far less likely to rely on something I say here than, than you. <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean. Uh, check, check. You, you said something to me about this concept. Uh, I'm ne- I'll never forget it. You said, and, and it's one of those things where you just did this summation, and I think it's very powerful. You said, I believe God is sovereign enough to give us choices, to allow us to make choices that still stay within his sovereignty. And, and I yeah, enhance it. That's right. Yep. Well, Hank, thank you. I can't thank you enough for, for being here. This, this, wow, we've been uh, talking now for quite some time. You've been so gracious with your time. I know you're busy and you've been traveling. Folks, it is good to be with you. Please, again, like, share, review, and subscribe to the Relentless Truth Podcast. And for more about our work, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at johnwarrenmedia.com on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.